So we can, we can look at the, the structure of the leg muscles and, and do some biomechanical modeling to figure out exactly how fast and how fluid these, these animals could have moved their legs. Um, but then on top of that, we can combine that with some paleoecnology, so footprints, some footprint evidence, and we can measure out the footprint distance um, and figure out exactly how they were moving through their environment. Paleontologist Eric Lund studies an interesting group of dinosaurs called ceratopsians, or horned dinosaurs. If that sounds familiar, you've probably heard of Triceratops, which is only one of about 80 species of horned dinosaur. Eric was the guest presenter at one of the Sigma's Eye pizza lunches, which are being held virtually this year. The events are co-sponsored by American Scientist magazine and the Sigma's Eye chapter of Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. I'm Brian Mallow, and on this episode of the American Scientist podcast, a conversation with Eric K. Lund. Eric is the paleontology lab manager at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences and is completing his doctorate at Ohio University. His focus is the paleobiology and functional morphology of ceratopsians. Here's our conversation. Thanks for being here again, Eric. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Um, I really enjoyed your talk, and I have a lot of questions, and we also have questions from the audience. Um, You know what I'd like to start with? Um, Did you always know that you wanted to be a scientist, and did you always know that you wanted to be a paleontologist? Yeah, so I I was one of those um, really nerdy little kids that (laughs) when I was four, um, I loved dinosaurs, and my grandparents took me to Dinosaur National Monument uh, in Utah, and I'm not really sure what it was, but I just fell in love with the idea of paleontology and dinosaurs specifically. Um, so yeah, I, I um, never <laughs> grew out of that. Yeah, you're not the only kid. Now, you, the rarer ones are the paleontologists that never outgrew it, but you're not alone in falling in love with dinosaurs. And Triceratops is one of those that it's one of the classics. Oh, um, you know, one of the things that I think is fascinating and must be awesome about being a scientist, you know, I'm not a scientist, I'm just a big science enthusiast, but one thing I hear from scientists, one of their favorite things about being a scientist um, is you get to discover new things and you get to be the first person in the world to even know something. Now, sometimes that's the result of an experiment and you learn something that no one else knows yet, but for some types of scientists, there's like, including paleontologists, there's the discovery of new species. And for paleontologists, so you've had the opportunity to literally see something that no one has seen from tens of millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. And I know that you've had the opportunity to describe, to discover and describe new species. So tell me something about that. What is that like? to unearth something that hasn't even seen daylight for tens of millions of years. Oh, it's just, it's really just amazing. And it, it, you are right. It is one of the things that really makes this job and what I do very, very exciting. Um, to be the first person to see a fossil that hasn't been touched or looked at uh, for, you know, 70 million years is, is just amazing. And then to be able to, have the opportunity to study that fossil and compare it to everything that we know and realize that we don't know anything and we get to uh, continue to learn and put the pieces together and uh, try to figure out how everything is connected. Yeah, it is, it is one of the most fascinating things. It must be. And um, 
don't give us as, as great a detail as you did in the actual talk, but why don't you introduce us to the idea of, uh, of these horned dinosaurs, the Ceratopsians? What are they? Um, and, you know, I would like you to tell me a little bit about their discovery because you did cover that in your talk, but it's a great, great story. Yeah, so horned dinosaurs or Ceratopsians uh, are an iconic group that um, have been in a that were in existence for about 170 million years. So the group originated in the late Jurassic about 170 million years ago, and they persisted all the way to 66 million years ago at the end Cretaceous extinction. Um, and they started out really small bodied. So animals that are less than a meter long, and they got to be some of the most iconic forms over nine meters long with heads over nine feet long in animals <laughs> such as Triceratops and Pentaceratops. Um, so they started out as these uh, bipedal animals and then became um, requisite uh, quadrupeds just because they got so large. So they very successful group of plant eaters um, that existed, like I said, from the Jurassic to the, to the Cretaceous. How did these creatures go from these much smaller, you said like a meter, a meter or a couple meters, a meter in length, uh, these smaller bipedal uh, dinosaurs, how did they evolve into these huge uh, horned dinosaurs? Like that just seems like, is there, is that even a question that's, is oh, that a legitimate question? It is question? a question. It's one of the questions that I have and that I, I have asked and am working on right now. Um, and other people have asked too, and the answer is, we don't know. We don't know why they <laughs> went from being really small to becoming some of the most, to becoming some of the largest terrestrial vertebrates to ever live, especially to go from something that has a really small head to something that has a head, uh, you know, almost three meters long is, is just fascinating. And we just don't know. So, and they all, they're all plant eaters. That, all that's plant a, eaters. Yeah. That's a thing that, that I think a lot of us have always wondered. Like, you can understand a giant T Rex that's a carnivore becoming that big. But then when you look at some of these other sort of, you know, the giant, uh, like, like Brontosaurus type, like, uh, uh, dinosaurs, you go, how could something that gigantic, uh, it must just eat plants all, all day, 24 7. Yep. <laughs> Spent a lot of time just chewing the, chewing the leaves. It's kind of incredible. I'm really interested how we know. So tell me something about the nature of your specific research within this. So you gave a, a nice introduction in your talk to the whole uh, phylogeny, I guess, of, uh, of, of the horned dinosaurs. But um, what is the nature of your research? Yeah, so my research focuses uh, on how I'm looking at a specific part of the head, specifically the preorbital facial skeleton. So everything in front of the eyes and seeing how this feature changes through time. Um, so like we've said, these animals start out relatively small, less than a meter with a really relatively tiny head uh, and then get to have such a large head. Um, and the ones that have tiny heads, the front part of their face is a relatively small portion of the overall skull length. But as we get into animals like Triceratops uh, and Pentaceratops, the nose, the front part of the face becomes a very big portion overall of that part of the skull. And so I'm interested in why did those changes happen? Was it related to something they were doing in their environment? Was it related to how these animals were eating or foraging? 
or is it related to how these animals were just living their life, um, regulating their body temperature, or um, maybe it was just really sexy to have a very large nose for other ceratopsians. Um, so that's, that's really what I'm interested in, is trying to figure out why these animals got really big. And I'm also it's interested in how these animals changed overall through time and how uh, their story of originating in Asia um, transitions over into North America. Very interesting. Do you ever get envious or frustrated that, that people who study more modern species can enhance their studies with genetic information that really helps you see how things evolve and change and how things in this species are related to another species by tracing the gen and you don't really is there anything you can say about that 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 why we why jurassic park hasn't happened yet and why we don't uh uh feel maybe I, I'm guessing that we're not optimistic about ever obtaining uh, genetic material from species that old and fossilized? You know, right now, no. But as science techniques get better and we're able to replicate ever smaller and smaller pieces of biomolecules, who's to say that we won't get so good with the technology that we have that we might be able to, um, to do that. But as of right now, um, you know, the biomolecules that are preserved in and around these animals is just too old um, for us to yeah. really be able to do anything with. And is it that it's that genetic material just, uh, do we know anything about the limits to how long it's um, retrievable or stable or? I, I, I couldn't possibly begin yeah. with any specifics about that, but it, yeah. I do know that it's just unstable outside of viable, <laughs> you know, organism. So. Um, once it gets um, outside the environment, it just starts to break down. Yeah. You know, I don't know that we'll be able to get to all of these questions. So, um, you know, maybe like if you can give succinct answers to some of these. One, one of the questions that you definitely addressed in your talk, Amber Lee asked, what was the first horned dinosaur discovered by paleontologists? Could you give us a shorter version of how the, the, the horned dinosaurs were discovered? Yeah, so one of the first horned dinosaurs uh, was an animal called uh, Agathalmus, and it was really just postcranial material. So some vertebrae and some hips, uh, and that was uh, found in Montana. Um, so no skull, um, but that was the first horned dinosaur. Uh, and then the first fossil to really be able to say this is a horned dinosaur uh, was an animal found in Wyoming. That was actually, has a really cool story. It was actually lassoed. The fossil was lassoed by a cowboy in Wyoming uh, and brought back. And that was, that fossil eventually became the holotype species of Triceratops hortus. When you say holotype? Holotype is uh, the uh, single specimen that uh, an organism is named from. Let me ask you another jargon question. In your talk, a word that you used a few times was derived, like a derived feature. What does that yeah. mean in that context? Uh, so the word derived uh, sort of holds uh, a little bit of a um, bag of worms, but it, it basically just means uh, animals that uh, originated later in time have a, a more advanced characteristic. Okay. So like the, like the horns themselves that became way more horny, so yeah, to speak. In some yeah, ways, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Mike asked a bunch of questions. Um, one that maybe just briefly, because I think you explained this, that where were the Ceratopsians on the map based on 
or were they based on where the continents were? And you sort of described that their appearance had to do the United States wasn't shaped like this. It was divided by water. And and they tended towards the the shorelines, you believe? Yeah, well, in in the latest Cretaceous of North America, these animals were sort of restricted between the interior Cretaceous Seaway and the mountains being built to the west. Um, But overall, during the late Jurassic to the Cretaceous, the continents were not in the position they are today. Um, right. Which allowed some uh, transit of these animals, some immigration and emigration across various land bridges. Is that why when you showed the map, um, there were some here far west in the United States and far east, far east Asia. Um, yeah. Is that because if we looked at, if those were connected the other way that they could act from the, yeah. the east to the west, that those kind of connected, so it was one? It seems to be a land bridge that connected uh, Asia and North America and these animals. Interesting. Definitely going back and forth. Yeah. Um, how long did it take for these huge bone-shaped changes to evolve? How do these bone changes compare to other dinos with specialized heads, such as uh, Pachycephalosaurus or Parasaurolophus? Yeah, so it's um, a good, good drive. Para- Obviously para- not my question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyway, these bony features, the accentuation of the um, nasal horns, nasal bosses, and the, and the frill um, was a late Cretaceous sort of um, feature. So early on in the Jurassic and earliest Cretaceous, they didn't have, um, they only had incipient little bumps um, over the nose and incipient frills. Um, and so these features really started to take off um, from uh, about middle Cretaceous to the end. Um, here's a combination, another Mike question combined with a question of mine. Um, he asked, how do those who study dinosaurs know that their bones weren't just different shapes within the same species? And I think that sort of ties to this idea that I understand that Triceratops, like we probably have more specimens of Triceratops than most other, it's one of the, uh, it's a commonly recovered uh, fossil. So tell me something. It's like, I think it's towards answering that question too. It, why is it even important once we already have, do, do you know how many triceratops specimens we have? And why is it important to keep finding new ones anyway? Um, Are they helpful? I don't know the specific number of individual triceratops specimens that have been recovered, but it's a lot. Um, and most of them are housed at the Museum of the Rockies in Bozeman. Uh, but anyway, why do we need more? And we always need more because we continue to learn about inter and intraspecific variation. So variation within a species and variation outside a species, which help us to more fine tune yeah. history, the evolutionary history of these animals. And so it, what about that question? Is there anything you, of Mike's that, um, how do you know it's a different species and maybe not just variation within the same species? That's, I guess that's a big question that yeah. <laughs> once, um, once you study paleontology for a couple decades, you'll have some insight. Yeah. And, and really, it's just all about due diligence. So yeah. if you find a feature that, that is slightly different than something else, hopefully you see that feature repeated through what is called uh, shared evolution. So if this is a true feature and um, subsequent animals share that feature, then it seems to be a true characteristic which is passed down and not just 
a strange bump on some bone that just happens to be a muscle scar or something. Right. Speaking of, so um, can a paleontologist reconstruct the dinosaur from the bone shape, like Angela on bones, I guess that's reconstructing like murder victims or something. Um, they can do reconstructed faces so by adding skin and muscle and right, can you, what can you say about this? This is a very, you know, there are so many questions that people that aren't paleontologists, we wonder how you know, you know all these things, how do you know them? So this brings up like, how do we really, if, if we have these fossilized bones, what do we really know about the muscles, the skin, pigments, feathers, colors? How do we make that leap? Yeah, so as far as adding muscle to these things, so a lot of the time we use what's called the extant phylogenetic bracket. So we know that modern crocodiles and modern birds uh, are related to dinosaurs. And so we do a lot of modern dissection to see how those muscles and connective tissues actually attach to the bone. And in those attachment sites, we look at to see if there's any evidence of bone scars and then if then we know that this muscle attached to this bone scar, so then we can go to the fossils and look for those same uh, osteological correlates, those same bony features in the dinosaur. And then we can be able to start reconstructing how the musculature uh, was around those bones. Uh, as far as skin texture, we do have um, preserved skin impressions from a lot of different fossils, from I think almost every group of dinosaur we have preserved skin impression, which gives us an idea, not of color, but of scale pattern. Um, Color-wise, most dinosaur groups, we have no idea, and we will not know, because we just can't, we just, those biomolecules aren't preserved. There are some really, really well-preserved avian dinosaurs um, from China that we've been able to analyze, well, I haven't, but, uh, colleagues of mine have been able to analyze and get pigment cells from from these fossils and um, they're, they're able to say that at least for this fossil it had some red feathers which is really really cool so we are entering in the phase where our technological advances are catching up with our questions and being able to allow us to answer these things that's amazing. You know, when I, I think when I was a kid growing up, I think that all of those depictions of dinosaur colors and exteriors were pretty fanciful. Oh, but yeah. in the, in the, in the, by the time that you were a young man, all of a sudden we had that kind of evidence, which, yeah. uh, which changed the, the feathers and the pigments. So that's really fascinating. Let's take a look at another audience question. Um, it's interesting. This is from Chinzori. It's interesting that two characters that you pointed out consistent, a short portion of the front skull with small frill and a long front skull with a large frill, were these characteristic features related to the different living environments? What is the most believed or close enough hypothesis, do you think, from those specific hypotheses in your slide? Did that make sense to you? Yeah, did that come does. across? Um, yeah. And so my answer to that is, that ecologically these two animals were probably foraging or feeding in diff slightly different environments. Um, and some colleagues of mine have, have done some work towards that in trying to look at the rocks that these fossils are contained in, whether or not they're in uh, near, uh, near shore environments or more near river environments uh, and trying to parse out exactly if you can 
get some paleo ecological signal from that. Um, but having a short face, short frill, um, and a long frill, long face, um, probably points to these animals doing slightly different things, um, but still plant eaters, but just maybe slightly different environments. Yeah, that's another fascinating part where you try, you, so you take the anatomy that you discover, and then you try to understand its behaviors. Yep. I all that's a very interesting topic and and related to that and uh is that um in your last slide you sh uh the the questioner said that it sort of implied that triceratops might trot like a horse and do you think that's accurate or is that is that fanciful um what do you think about that yep so we can we can look at the the structure of the leg muscles and and do some biomechanical modeling to figure out exactly how fast and how fluid these, these animals could have moved their legs. Um, but then on top of that, we can combine that with some paleoecnology, so footprints, some footprint evidence, and we can measure out the footprint distance um, and figure out exactly how they were moving through their environment. So it's really That's all about combining as much information as you can on top of one another to be able to fully or at least try to get at a better better answer yeah you know what it is already 1 30 which we understand a lot of people may have just taken an hour break a lunch break to enjoy this presentation and if you have to go that's okay but i think i just might uh ask eric just a couple more questions um let me ask you, you you mentioned somewhere you said something about things you get asked a lot are there things that you wish is there something you wish more people understood about paleontology or your work and your research um i think it's just that we are only scratching the surface in the things that we're figuring out so most people think of paleontology as being a very old science and that we know everything the truth is we're just scratching the surface and there are still questions that we don't even know need to be asked. Um, but as technological advances come along, as new uh, people to the field come and look at these things with new eyes, new ways of thinking, um, it's really just expanding. And, and the truth is, we just don't know. We just don't know a lot of the things. Do you have a favorite dinosaur? And is, is it a ceratopsian? It is. It is. And, it, and my favorite ceratopsian is Nasutoceratops. Why? Well, I found it in 2006. I found the, the, the actual bones of Nesutoceratops, the very A new speed, new to science? Yep, brand new to science. Um, I was the fossil preparator who prepared, who did all the preparation on the bones to remove the bones from the rock. Uh, and it was the focus of my master's degree. So, um, Good it, reasons, yeah. <laughs> That's excellent. And just about ceratopsians in general, what's, why do you love ceratopsians? What's awesome to someone who doesn't know, what, what's, why do you love ceratopsians? Oh, just because they're so, they're such a fantastical beast with the varied array of horns and bobs coming off their heads and how they went from a relatively small animal to being one of the largest terrestrial vertebrates to ever walk the earth. Wow. And, you know, you did talk about some things about, like, we don't really know the purposes or functions of the horns and the frills that they have, but there are some very likely hypotheses based on what we know about other species. Um, so that's really interesting. And I love that the idea you showed this big frill, maybe on a triceratops, um, and a fossil that it was discovered in the frill to have a lot of 
Like these cracks, that's not, it wasn't obvious to me, but it was indications of a lot of vascular system, a lot of blood yeah. flow going on in the frill, and yeah. you connected it to elephants. Yeah, so if we look at modern elephants, very large bodied mo modern animals in general, and see how they control their body heat, we can sort of extrapolate that to ceratopsians, because some of these guys, like I said, nine meters long, that is a huge, huge body. So you're a very large animal trying to lose a lot of body heat. Well, how do you do that? Well, one of the pieces that Brian has spoke to was the um, vascular and pitted nature of these neck shields or frills. And it seems that they were very vascularized, which points to having uh, a lot of blood flow to these things. So perhaps you can shunt a bunch of hot blood up into this basically body uh, regulator and radiate all that heat away from yourself. Uh, and then bring the cool blood back down in. And elephants do the same thing with their ears. So they can take a whole bunch of hot blood, shunt it out into their ears and bring it back in and sort of circulate that around. Um, yeah. So um, based off of the, the morphological evidence from these frills, it seems like you know, that's a potentially uh, a good hypothesis as to one function. Right, and then and another you mentioned like just sexual selection and big displays that we see on all sorts of, uh, well, on a lot of Yep. Current avian dinosaurs, birds today, have a lot of elaborations. So that's very interesting too. Um, so we'll wrap up. But the other, th one of the other things that really amazed me in your talk was the stuff about their teeth. And I guess sharks sort of have a system too. But when you yep. specifically said that there's the active teeth at the surface, but in each socket underneath, there's like four more ready to go. That just yep. sounds insane. That sounds like science fiction. That sounds like if you designed it you would go, yeah, well, why don't we have four replacement teeth yeah, just exactly. pop up when needed? How does, how does something like that evolve? It's crazy. Yeah, so the early members of this group just have single rooted, single uh, teeth in their sockets. And then uh, as we get to the early Cretaceous, they start stacking their teeth upon top of each other. Um, so whatever it was, whatever uh, evolutionary selectivity for having um, multiple teeth in a single socket, um, just sort of was selected for and took off. Uh, and then as you go through uh, the family tree of these animals, they just derive one of the most um, crazy chewing apparatuses of any group of dinosaurs. It's amazing um, what evolution has come up with, um, yeah. given enough time. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist Magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. This episode was produced by me, Brian Mallow, and featured a conversation with paleontologist Eric Lund of Ohio University and the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. Thank you for joining us.